And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies in association with Catholic Answers, which can be found online at catholic.com. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature to history to art, philosophy and science, as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, welcome to Deep Down Things, the podcast of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm Dave Devil, a professor of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas and also the editor of Logos. I'm here with my co-host, Liz Kelly, award-winning author, speaker, singer. She does everything. But most <laughs> importantly, she's the managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Liz, how are you? Thank you. I'm great. How are you doing? Fine, fine, fine. We have a great guest today, Professor Dan Maher of Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. He's a philosopher and the author of a great article in Logos recently on using stories to teach ethics. And it's a great article using Alexander Solzhenitsyn's wonderful story, The New Generation. Dan, how are you doing this morning? Just fine. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here with us. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, well, I'm, a, as you said, a philosophy professor, which is normally a good way to end a conversation rather than start. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've, been, I've been teaching at uh, Catholic schools on, on the East Coast, Catholic University of America, now at uh, Assumption College. We recently changed our name to Assumption University. Um, and uh, so I teach here in Worcester, uh, where a lot of students uh, have to take a couple of philosophy classes as part of their uh, Ordinary education. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not looking to be philosophy majors or go on to graduate school. So we end up doing a lot of uh, uh, sort of philosophy at a relatively introductory level. Although we like mm. to introduce people to great pieces of writing. Mm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And and I will not hold you being a philosophy professor against you. I'm. Yeah. I'm actually married to one, so <laughs> I have. I have a deep interest in uh, appeasing the philosophy professor crowd. Uh, your article for us. Is, is a very good one. In fact, I was reading it this morning as I was preparing a little bit of it to my wife, uh, particularly your line, there are no trolley cars in my ethics class. There are no lifeboats or desert islands where we face arresting dilemmas. Um, these are staples of the last century's classes in ethics, and yet your article is really about why you don't use them and you use something else. What's wrong with all of those situations? And What's right uh, with, uh, with using fiction or, as you use uh, the terminology, poetic accounts of action? I guess I, I, maybe I would soften that a bit and, and not so much say that there's something wrong with those, but just say I, I prefer to focus in a different area. I think mm-hmm. there, there may well be people who know how to use those well. I suspect that's in part why they're popular. Uh, one of the things they do successfully is force people to make a choice and force people to articulate the reasons for their choices. And I, I think that's a good thing. The difficulty, or one of the chief difficulties I have with them is they are such artificial situations. They abstract entirely from the character of the person making the choice, and they, um, uh, 
sort of puts you in a context that is is so unreal and unusual that it's hard to see what it tells you about uh, making choices in, in more ordinary settings, which are the kind that we all face. Mm. Yeah, it's very unlikely any of us will end up on desert islands and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I've always found that a problem. Yeah, you, I mean, you know, would you then shoot all the people on the island to save the, you know, these <laughs> things? I've, I've always found them a, a, a bit much too. But but say more about that. I mean, you, you said that they abstract from, from the sort of reality about it. And that sort of gets us into this question of, of why is it that poetic accounts, or we could say great fictional accounts, can actually make us ask, ask these questions in a, in a different kind of way. Um, uh, you know, we get characters. What, what else about uh, fictional stories, or at least very good ones, makes them a kind of better vehicle to think more concretely about our uh, about our ethical choices, our moral choices. Uh, I, I think the way to speak about that is is to uh, tell a little bit of how I began to introduce them into my teaching. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, my teaching career has been primarily defined by teaching students classic works written by philosophers, so Aristotle, John Stuart Mill, Immanuel Kant, which mm-hmm. is that's the deep end of the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have uh, their own ways of, of addressing these things, and they're profound, and they're, they're, they're lasting, and, and um, there's, there's, an, there's an inescapable or a, uh, an irreplaceable value in uh, matching wits with a genius when you're trying to think about ordinary human questions. And so I, I defend the, the use of that. But there's something abstract, too, about, say, Immanuel Kant's ethics and this highly formalistic solution, and students find it alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there's, a, there's, there's something they're, they're right about there. Um, now, Aristotle is a little more, uh, you might say, obviously realistic than Kant, but, but what Aristotle gives you is sort of character types mm-hmm. as distinct from particular choices. And um, again, that can seem um, a little bit distant for, for a lot of students. And what you get in literature is, is well-written literature, real characters, drawn in a lifelike measure, facing situations that are recognizable, and you see how they choose. And moreover, you, instead of just by comparison to, uh, uh, say, a live example where you can tell a story about a choice you faced or a choice someone you know faced, the, the advantage of literature is that it gives you a complete story mm-hmm. of that person. Well, everything you need to know about the character is in the story. Mm-hmm. And in real life, we can't judge one another like that. We always have to hold out that there are aspects we don't know, and um, the person may have been uh, influenced by something of which we're unaware. Their freedom could have been compromised in all these ways. And, and that's why we, we have to be very cautious in judging particular actions taken by real people. But we can be a little more uh, uh, truthful and objective and, and, if necessary, merciless when we deal with literary characters. <laughs> well, and I find in this story, too, the new generation that uh, you introduce us to in your article, uh, one of the things I loved about it was the nuance. You don't get that nuance in the desert island scenarios. Uh, but the characters in this story are facing so many nuanced levels of decisions. It's so much more uh, like real life, and I think in that way it's very, very effective in the in the way that you propose to teach it. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I just I found the story compelling. It's uh, you know Solzhenitsyn is mostly known for these enormous uh, <laughs> you know books, seven, eight hundred pages in, mm-hmm. in one of the volumes. <laughs> um, you know there'll be there are thousands of pages when they run on at length, and yet when I, I start reading these short stories by him. And uh, he, he is incredibly uh, uh, precise with a, a little detail here and there mm. to feel an entire character. One of, a, one of the, the details I, I make a big deal about in my reading of the story is uh, the main character's size on two occasions. Mm-hmm. And that sigh, in, in each case, it shows you something essential about his character. And it's just, um, it's just masterful writing. And, and students can see that and appreciate it. Uh, you know, a 20-page story is so much more accessible. And when it's written with this degree of, of as you say, nuance, um, it just, it's, it's, a, it's a thing of beauty. Could you give us a kind of run, brief rundown of, of the story, The New Generation? It, tell, it's a binary tale. Tell us what a binary tale is, and, and, and then maybe with, the, uh, with the, the brief rundown of the plot, we can sort of see what you mean by that. Uh, well, yeah, by binary tale, that's, that's the label that Solzhenitsyn gave these. Now, I, I'm reading them in, in translation. I, I don't know uh, uh, two words of Russian. And um, the, the edition that I'm looking at actually has uh, mentions binary tale on the jacket cover, yeah. um, but it, it doesn't give you any explanation. There's no forward or preface to, to account for what that is. But when you read the stories, as I've done, what you see is every story falls into two parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some, in, in a really a variety of ways, you're given uh, uh, something to contrast. You're giving a, a, a pair, and sometimes it's the same characters in the two parts, and sometimes it's two different characters, sometimes it's two different slices of life. Um, and you, when you see them together, what you get is, is a, a profile. You get a, a contrast. This is, I think, how we how we learn and recognize something is by seeing its limits, seeing its borders and contours. And so the, the image of a silhouette where the, the white and the black illuminate each other, that's when I read the binary tales, that's what I find in them. Mm-hmm. The, the two halves in very different ways in different stories show us things. So the, the story is uh, about this man who's a, a teacher, a professor of engineering, and we open in, in a, an exam room setting where one student is clearly struggling um, and he cannot pass the test and it's not a matter of effort uh, or goodwill. He just doesn't belong there, but he's been placed there by Soviet policy. Um, and the professor first wants to stand uh, with the, the, the canons of his profession and fail the student, but he gives in. He caves in on account of, well, this is the policy, and who am I to judge, and that sort of thing. And then we meet the same two characters years later, about five years later, and the um, this time the professor has been arrested, um, uh, apparently under suspicion of, of counter-revolutionary activities, and he then gets interrogated, and his interrogator is his former student. And uh, his former student now um, has this opportunity to, uh, well, take advantage of the professor, and that's exactly what he does, um, and pressures him to betray his friends. Um, and what we see, at least in my reading of it, is that you see, uh, uh, to come back to this notion of the, the desert island and the uh, 
the trolley car, very few of us are ever going to end, end up in interrogation. Um, and we don't know whether we'll hold up under torture or other kinds of pressure. We probably won't. They tell us everyone breaks. But what you see in this pairing is that it's the first encounter is when the professor really collapses. It's when the first encounter where the f professor shows himself unable to stand for what he should stand for. Mm. And through a misguided sense of, of mercy or of belonging on the team or something like that, he, he fails to, to live up to the ideals that he himself recognizes, and he surrenders to um, a nebulous standard that belongs to others. How do students react to this story? Do they, do they have a, a side that they pick, or do they uh, have sympathy for either, either the, the former failing student or the professor? Well, I, I think that as they're reading it, and as they'll tell you, when they first get along, they immediately identify with the student mm -hmm. who doesn't know yeah. to write on the exam. <laughs> and they think the professor has done him a great favor by passing him, even though he's... <laughs> even though okay. he's an engineering student <laughs> and something will collapse later because he doesn't well, know how to put it together. <laughs> that's, that's very interesting. I actually taught in an in engineering uh, school. When I taught at Catholic University, I taught engineering ethics uh, oh to future engineers. <laughs> and uh, very interesting, long before I knew this story, unfortunately, but, um, you know, I, I had a, a couple of occasions there where I had some trouble with students who uh, did some plagiarism on their, their projects for my class. Oh, and, really? and their response was, well, this isn't serious. Uh, this is right. just yeah. class. This is just philosophy. It's not like it's, it's not like it's serious, not like it counts, not like anything depends on this. Wow. Mm. I, had to, I had to explain to them that, Look, if if you if you can't put your name on something and have that stand for that it's your own work and it's high quality and that you stand by this, you know, when there's nothing at stake in right. a philosophy class in college, what's it going to be like when you're designing a bridge or or an elevator system and there's millions of dollars in you when you've got real pressure on you to and get lives done. you know lives you have to account for yeah and that's that's i think the the lesson with the professor is that he doesn't know about himself early on how weak he is and and how incapable he is of exercising moral judgment but he discovers it at the end and that's the real tragedy of the story is his own recognition of his, his inner collapse, which is, is just, it's heartbreaking. You, uh, you talk about uh, malice uh, in, in this story and how there's a kind of a lesson there that needs to be learned is that some people have truly become malicious. They have, they have ill wills. Um, and I wonder, is that, is that one of the most important lessons here that this, you know, even if the professor might have kind of meant well and was weak, uh, that kind of weakness often is the is the gateway uh, for other people with with darker motives to to pass right through. Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a lot of complexity there. Um, on, on the one hand, I think that it's an important sort of intellectual lesson for, you know, decent people. Most of my students are very decent people. I'm willing to say they're all very decent people who mean well. They don't, they're not malicious people. But there is malice, and so we need to know that. <laughs> we need to know that there are malicious actors and not everyone means well. Um, on, on the other hand, there's, there's also a lesson um, in, in recognizing that even while meaning well, people do evil. Yeah. Um, 
and that, that often happens, that, and, and that's more likely mm-hmm. uh, what will happen and the, the choices that these students will face, where they'll be, you know, pressured to go along, to be one of the, one of the gang, one of the guys, and, and do what other people don't come to them, this fudge and expense report, that kind of thing, and, and end up doing real evil. Uh, and that's that's sometimes how it happens. And again, that's the, the that moment early on when the professor he says a couple of times, "There's nothing I can do. You know, your exam is effectively blank. I have to. It's my responsibility. I'm an engineer. I stand for this." And then he reverses because he, um, well, who am I to judge? <laughs> right. And and it's like, well, exactly. You're the professor. You are the one who's supposed to judge. And and so that 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 softer form of of failure to to recognize and live up to what we know is right. That's another way that people do evil. And and we need to recognize. You know, the to, to Solzhenitsyn is perhaps his most famous line and image it comes from the the Gulag, where he's you know. The, there are not white hats and black hats in the world. There are not, you know, Shakespeare's Iago, you know, these, these people who seem to be evil incarnate and, and the villains we see in our superhero stories. He says the line between good and evil runs right through every human heart. Mm-hmm. And it'd be nice if, if there were black-hearted people that we could simply identify and label. Um, but, but every human being faces this, this division, this challenge. Um, and we always face it, as I say, again, not in the trolley car situation, but we face it where there are all kinds of pressures to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And so every, every choice in our past that shapes our character contributes to our ability to, to stand up you know, at the moment that it's really required of us, if it ever is. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies Movement in Higher Education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash catholic studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Many of uh, Solzhenitsyn's characters in some of the longer works especially, but also in something like One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, um, are the ones who stand up for these things often are religious. Um, you know, the professor in this, in this story, The New Generation, seems to be not, not anti-religious, but, but a-religious, non-religious. Um, do, do any of your students ever sort of bring that up as, as one of the aspects of, of this uh, story, that there's a kind of a motivational problem, perhaps, or, or maybe there's, a, there's something that's needed to strengthen the weak will? Yeah, I, I think we do see that, and, and that's, I think it's a very interesting question also to, to raise with students about what is the role of God in, in recognizing what's what's right and what's wrong. Some people want God or, or religion to do all of the work for them, so right. that they don't sure. have to think anymore. 
um, about about what's right and what's wrong. Um, but it, it's it is true that that um, uh, that that is an, uh, a, a typical Solzhenitsyn theme that is not front and center in this story. Um, so I, I should have to, I should think about that more to see um, why that might be the case. But um, it, it is a it is certainly a question and an element that needs to be faced. One of the interesting things, I mean, maybe maybe the maybe the answer to that is it's it's present by its absence, <laughs> and we're meant to sort of read into that. But I but that makes me think of another point that you made more explicitly, which is that in this story there's no there's no external violence that's depicted, and you make the point that this actually goes along with one of Aristotle's recommendations is that violence is better kept off stage, mm. and I take it that that's not just uh, to sort of satisfy weak stomachs or protect the children, but b- because there's actually something more effective and more, more disturbing about not seeing it. Is, 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 what do you think about that? I, I think that's right. It's, it's more, um, uh, as, I, as I try to describe the way I read the story, it's very simply told, um, and it's clearly deliberately part of Konopliov. He's the, the former student who becomes the interrogator. Um, it, 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 there's this sort of threat of cruelty all the time that never happens. Mm-hmm. So the the professor is thrown into jail, and he watches other people get called out for interrogate interrogations. They come back beaten and bloodied, and and but never him. And it's day after day he loses track of the days, and so he's anticipating that it's coming. And then when he when he does meet his interrogator, he's almost friendly. Right? He, mm-hmm. he doesn't doesn't rant and rave. There are no implements of torture nearby. He mentions, "Oh, we got some blinding lights that might uh, damage your vision," and there's a verbal threat against uh, his daughter and her her possible future in school. But it's it's all all the work is done internally. Um, it's it's psychic violence mm-hmm. um, on on the. Uh, on the poor professor, which again, I, you know, I, as I say, I think he, he does a bad thing, but I, I think that it's hard to imagine the human being who could stand up against what um, can be done to someone in those circumstances. Uh, and that, that's, I think, another interesting thing I wanted to say earlier about uh, the students and their response to this. Um, they have a, a way where they want to just solve all the problems by saying, well, of course he has to protect his family rather than, you know, so he right. has to betray his friend because family's more important than friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's, it seems to me, a highly questionable thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, why exactly? If, if family leads us to betray our friends, why is family good? Um, and it's a, it's a theme in other Solzhenitsyn writings. Another one of these binary tales depends uh, very much on that. And, and uh, the the willingness of of the Soviets to to use family attachments to to break people, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it is a strong attachment. Um, you know, Solzhenitsyn uh, uh, has a passage, uh, I believe, in the Gulag, where he says that every parent had to face this question of whether, if they were believers, whether they would raise their children to be Christians, yeah. um, with the risk that just the children might reveal something and, and get themselves arrested or get the family arrested, or do you, or do you hide it from, from your children? Yeah. Um, 
uh, yeah, the status of the family in, in, in those circumstances is, is deeply troubling. I think of a line by Leon Cass in an article he did on the, on the binding of Isaac, in which he talks about the, uh, you know, the lesson of Abraham is essentially that you know, what makes it powerful is that we are going to sacrifice our children to some, some thing or some god. And the question is, what are we going to sacrifice it to? And, uh, you know, the character uh, Vosvidentie, think of the uh, professor's name, you know, he essentially is, is sacrificing his own daughter and his family, even though maybe he doesn't think that way. Yeah, well, that's, as I, that's, that's what the Soviets realized. If you have an attachment like that, yeah. then they can use it against you. Um, one of the other stories, uh, it's, it's the second story, I think, called, it's called Ego. It's about this man who carries on a kind of revolt against the Soviets early on, and he's, he hides his name for the longest time. He, he goes under this um, pseudonym, or, or it's, it's, I, I don't remember what it is in Russian. It's like Nemo or something from, from the Odyssey, you know, no man. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and so that way they don't know how to get to him because they don't know who he is. But then at some point someone betrays his name. They figure out who his family is. They go get the family, and that's the end of the rebellion um, because that's the weak point is that attachment. So it's, it's, a, it's a sign of, of again, the malice uh, when people are willing to use good things like family attachment, that, that strong, strong bond that people have to, to break them. You you bring up uh, deliberate falsifications being useful in in stories. Are there any? You, I think this is another another point that you may uh, mention that Aristotle makes um, is that the you know the gift of fiction is that it is capable of bringing about the specificity, but it's also malleable in certain ways. Uh, what do you mean by falsifications? Are there any in in this story? Um. Uh, I don't have a, a on that last question. I don't have a, a specific detail in mind there. Yeah. Uh, but what Aristotle has in mind is that um, we can, um, in order to to bring that kind of coherence and unity to the story, you can you can falsify some things, um, and if that helps you see the point that the poet is trying to make better, then then it's all to the good. And and the the example. Um, for Aristotle, and this I, I think is, is crucial to, to thinking about fiction in the Christian context, um, is uh, the, the Oedipus story, where there's a divine foretelling of the future, right? the, the foretelling that Oedipus will kill his father and marry his mother. Now, Aristotle has strong philosophical arguments that knowledge of the future event of that type is impossible. Right, the gods cannot know the future because the future doesn't exist; right. it can't be known. But he praises the play mm-hmm. <laughs> of Oedipus Rex, even though it includes that falsification, um, because it helps us see better what the poet's point is. Um, now, that I think is just fascinating in the Christian context, um, because in the Christian context, it seems to me literature has to somehow account for that, where there is a view of the future that tells the truth. Yeah. Um, and there, there isn't in the pagan context. Um, so the um, poet's task in, for Aristotle is to sort of provide this sort of perfect view of human action. It's as if it's, it's kind of God's eye view, where the, the poet 
knows the beginning and the end of the story as he tells it, um, whereas Aristotle thinks in real life we, we don't know that there is no present knowledge of the future and how our, our actions and our choices will end. And so that's a falsification that the poet, poetry always introduces, but it clarifies our grasp of action when we can see an action from its beginning to its end, and then that gives us a way to behold um, human action and human choices. It's in a sense false, but it's illuminating nonetheless. Do students, uh, do you have students uh, come back to you, you know, the next semester or the next year and saying, oh, you know, this story or perhaps another one that you've used, you know, has really stuck with me and has, has, made, me, has made me act in a different way? Do, 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 have you experienced that with, uh, with students or yourself, that a story really does do something different than, than the desert island or the, or the trolley car has done? Uh, yeah, I mean, they don't, they often don't point to the particular thing, but I do get, I get reactions to this story. Yeah. Um, I, I use a, uh, a, a fantastic play in, in when I teach medical ethics by Margaret Edson called Wit, which was oh, also yeah. done. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, there's... Uh, with Emma, Emma Thompson. It's just fantastic, both the play and the movie. Yes. And, and uh, uh, so that one, that one's incredibly powerful. Uh, other the other stories I use I, I came to Solzhenitsyn last in my introducing fiction. Before that, I started with uh, detective stories. Oh yeah, because detective stories are a sort of moral world <laughs> where right. um, evil enters. Right, there's some crime committed, and uh, I've used uh, Sherlock Holmes, and I and I use um, uh, a Chesterton mystery, a Father Brown mystery. Yeah. And I, I contrast the two of them because of the, the way they handle evil. And so you get this evil thing happens, and it's mysterious, right? The police can't do anything. And so in comes Sherlock Holmes. Reason is going to deal with evil. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so you see how, how it's handled there. And in the Father Brown version, um, there's a, in the story I use, it's... Uh, Reason isn't enough. It starts with reason, but then it becomes he needs he needs mercy and forgiveness, um, and so the response to evil is not the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but in both cases, what you've got is a sort of rational response to the presence of evil in human choices. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Uh, we have we have some some places where we can look. Where else can we see some of your work or things that that you would recommend to think about this about how to use stories? We have a lot of listeners. Who are not only professors but teachers, uh, who who would love to to have some resources for thinking about how to use stories to get into ethical and moral theological questions. Uh, I, I'll mention a name um, and and a school where he comes from. I'll say a uh, Glenn Arbery, ah. um, who came out of the the University of Dallas, and he's moved around. He's out at uh, Wyoming College now, but he's written. Um, he's written his own fiction. He's actually just got a, a second novel has come out, but he's also written about literature and about uh, theology and philosophy and morality and connection with literature. And so um, uh, uh, the name of the uh, his teacher at uh, Dallas is escaping me right now, but um, yeah. but that school of thought, yeah. um, he has a book why, why Literature Matters. Um, that's, a, that's a good place to start. I would say the people like that take uh, the possibility of, of 
uh, literature as a source of truth seriously. Um, and uh, they, they treat it in a kind of classical way where it addresses uh, human life and its depth and, yeah. and, and questions of good and evil. And what are you working on these days? Well, um, I've been working on um, some of my sort of non-ethics stuff, which is uh, uh, the work of Jacob Klein, who was a teacher at, at St. John's College uh, in Annapolis uh, in central part of last century. I've been working on some of his things in early modern thought and mathematics. I'm also working a lot on friendship and trying to produce some, some articles on Aristotle and related authors on friendship. That's fantastic. Friendship, the moral life, and thinking about things through stories. This has been a wonderful episode. We thank you, Dan, for joining us on Deep Down Things. And we thank our audience for listening. We hope that you will continue to listen to us on all the major podcast platforms. And please see our Patreon site, patreon.com backslash deep down things. Thanks again, Liz, for joining us as co-host. Great to be here. And thank you, Dan. Well, thanks to both of you. I'm very grateful for the invitation, and I, uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Indeed we did. And thank you, our listeners. Keep listening to Deep Down Things. God bless. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.